Welcome to Multilingual Montessori, a podcast where we discuss multilingualism, multiculturalism, and raising children from a Montessori perspective. I'm Gabrielle Kutka, an AMI Montessori guide and TESOL instructor, and I'm the founder of the Multilingual Montessori website and Instagram account. Today I'm speaking with Andrea Imhoff, who is a PhD student in clinical psychology at the University of Oregon. Her research focuses on understanding language development in the early years and how it is impacted by high stress factors. Before she went into research, Andrea worked as an elementary school teacher and advisor in low income neighborhoods of New York City. Andrea shares her advice from her dual perspective as a former teacher and a current researcher about how we can support language development in the early years. Andrea is also raising a bilingual son. Her husband Lars grew up speaking Swedish at home, so they are planning to raise their six-month-old son Axel with Swedish as well. We also chat about the similarities between Montessori and the Reggio Emilia daycare that her son attends, and why we both love the idea of forest preschools. Please enjoy my conversation with Andrea. Hi, Andrea. Thanks so much for being a guest on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Gabby. I'm really um, excited to be here. I'm so excited to chat with you. Um, so to start, I would love for you to introduce yourself. Tell us who you are, where you live, what you do, and about your family. Great. Um, so my name is Andrea. Uh, Andrea Imhoff. I live in Eugene, Oregon, and I am currently a clinical psychology PhD student at the University of Oregon. Um, I've already forgotten all of the other questions. I have <laughs> lived in a million different places. So I met you originally in New York, but I've lived in New York and Boston, Colorado. I grew up in San Francisco. Um, and right now I live with my husband, uh, my five-month-old son, Axel, and we have a two-year-old golden retriever, Juno. Who is so cute. Um, so we're going to get all into your professional accomplishments and past, but I also, this has nothing to do with our conversation, but I just feel that I should note that you're also a very accomplished athlete, um, that we know each other through our New York running group, but you, the last time I saw you in person was at the 2020 U.S. Olympic marathon trials, which you were running, which is amazing. It is so, so wild to think about that part of my life because it feels like forever ago. It was literally the last thing that we did before the pandemic happened. And yeah. also was the last time I felt like I was in pretty good running shape because I have since had a child and now I run casually. <laughs> <laughs> well, just for old time's sake, what is your marathon PR? <laughs> Oh gosh, I should really know that answer off the top of my head. I think it is 2.44.03, which was my qualifying time to get to the trials. Um, yeah, I'm like fairly certain that's what it is, but yeah, it's possible that is, I lost by a few seconds. Well, it is insanely fast for anybody who does not know what marathon times are. It's insanely fast. So I just thought we should, you know, touch on that before getting into all of the, all of the language and education stuff. <laughs> Um, all right. So tell me about how you started working in education and what your early teaching experiences were like. Sure. Um, so I decided to go into education in college. Um, I went to Dartmouth and we had a very small 
um, elementary education program. And I just really clicked with the department there. Um, we had really inspirational professors. I have always worked with kids. I was, you know, that person who is a babysitter at age 12, um, worked at camp counselor, I worked as a camp counselor. Um, and I was in part of a bunch of different mentoring programs, coaching kids in college and realized that this, um, kind of magnetism towards working with kids could actually turn into a career. Um, and so I joined our cohort of elementary educators. There were six of us um, and we got our teaching license doing student teaching in the school district right around Hanover, New Hampshire. So I actually worked across the river in Vermont um, and got my start, I guess, in that capacity. Um, I taught third grade and fifth grade as a part of my student teaching experience. And that program ended in the middle of the school year, which is kind of a bizarre end. So I graduated in December, um, decided that I wanted to wait until the school year started and actually took my winter to kind of have my last hurrah before starting classroom teaching. And I was a preschool ski school instructor in Colorado for my first winter after teaching. So that was my outdoor education um, experience, I guess. You wow, can say. that must have been adorable. <laughs> it's pretty fun. We, we taught kids from age two to five in the preschool ah. program. Um, and it was amazing. I learned so much about honestly, I learned how to teach people to ski, which is a really great life skill because I've taught a bunch of adults how to ski using all the same tools that you use to teach a four year old. Um, and then after that winter was over, I was like, okay, I'm ready to be serious. I moved to New York City and I got my first classroom teaching job. Okay. So tell me about what your teaching experiences were like in New York. Yeah. So I think one of the things that maybe going back, I would think about more carefully is understanding the differences between different types of schools. So I um, was sort of naive when I moved to New York City teaching in Vermont schools, we had this really amazing, I was in the Upper Valley, New Hampshire. Um, we had a lot of resources, even the school district, I did some student teaching place, placements in lower resource areas, but um, the kids in the classroom and the curriculum were very outdoor education based. They were really like a relatively small student teacher ratio. And we learned a lot about ideal pedagogy and how to build um, curriculum as a part of our program. What I don't feel like I got great training in was classroom management. And I think that's probably something every first year teacher would tell you. But my first year of teaching in New York was like a huge wake up call. Um, I so my decision to move to New York City, I basically decided where I was going to go the beginning of August, bought a plane ticket kind of on a whim with no plan or job to like move in the middle of August. And I interviewed for a job the day, like the day after I landed in New York and got it without thinking about why this job was trying to hire a teacher the week before school started. Mm. Um, and I decided, okay, great. This seems good enough. I will just try it for a year. Um, so the school that I ended at, I ended up at was um, a charter school. It was this model called No Excuses Education, which is in retrospect, not actually a teaching philosophy that I really believe in, but is really focused on discipline um, and kind of like, I mean, no excuses discipline basically means that if, if a child steps out of line in any way, there is no excuse for that and there is a punishment that goes with it. So I, within the first month, recognized that this was not a school that I wanted to be learning classroom management practices from 
but I also kind of felt like I was in too deep. Um, and I had a classroom of fifth graders that, you know, needed a teacher for the year. I didn't want to quit on them. Um, but I really struggled with management, partly because I didn't have the skills yet and partly because the way that the school wanted me to do management didn't really vibe with what I believe is best for kids. And so I was miserable that year and I did stick it out through the year. I learned a lot, but essentially by the end of that year, it was a pretty new charter school. It was in, they were in their second year and about half the teachers quit at the end of that year because it was a really terrible place. So I felt horrible for those kids, but I also learned that I really needed to find a place that vibed with what I believe was good for kids. Um, and so, yeah, it was a pretty tough entry into New York City charter school teaching, um, but I learned a lot about how to better vet schools for the type of philosophy that they have, the type of environment that they have. And I got a new job working as a kindergarten teacher the following year at a school that really valued parent involvement and socio-emotional development and character development. And it vibed way more with what I believe is good for kids. Oh, that's awesome. Um, so what were some of the lessons that you learned working in kindergarten those years? Oh gosh, kindergarten was wonderful. Um, I actually, so in addition to switching from fifth grade down to kindergarten, I also moved out of a direct classroom teaching position and I took on a role as, um, it was called a K-1 intervention teacher, but essentially I was the reading and math specialist for kids who came into kindergarten struggling. Um, but that meant that I had a lot more, uh, a lot more autonomy to build small group instruction around what is best for kids who needed extra help. Um, so it's really hard to fully say what did I learned teaching kindergarten because a lot of what I was doing was teaching kids who are struggling with the entry into kindergarten and figuring out how to work around tough behaviors, how to really connect with kids who struggled. Um, we had a really high stressed a stressed out population, I would say, um, is in one of the lower income neighborhoods in New York City, actually one of the lower income zip codes in the country. And so a lot of our kids came to school without, they weren't super ready to start kindergarten. They'd had pretty stressful experiences at home. We had several kids who were in and out of the um, child welfare system and receiving a lot of other social services, a lot of kids who weren't fully housed. Um, and I think those challenges also kind of like helped me understand some of what's going on with why so many of our kids come to kindergarten, what we call underprepared and what that really actually means, like what, what it could mean to be um, struggling at age four. Mm, yeah. So what were some of the things that you looked for to see if a child needed intervention or extra help coming That's into a kindergarten? Great question. Um, we didn't have a really great system set up. So the formal education system in our country is um, lacking in many ways, identification tools for kids that might be struggling. And so a big part of my role, um, it was a new position, was to actually create that screening assessment to figure out, are these kids ready for kindergarten or not? And there's a whole bunch of reasons why kids could be not ready. So some of it was just socio-emotional reasons. Some of it was um, also in New York City, kids start kindergarten when they're four. So the birthday cutoff is December, which means a lot of kids are very young compared to the rest of the country, what the age for kindergarten start is. Um, 
So we did a lot of assessment based on behaviors, kids that were struggling integrating into a full classroom sometimes came in my groups. And then the formal like reading assessments were really looking at kids, we would do kind of a mini, you know, play games with them, but also test, do they know their letters? Can they write any letters? Do they know their numbers? Um, can they associate any sounds with any letters? And the kids who really didn't know any letters or know any letter sounds were often the ones that ended up coming with me for a little bit of extra help since kindergarten kind of hits the ground running. And we have pretty crazy standards. The common core standards for kindergarten are pretty um, rigorous. And so in order for the kids to be on standard or meet those standards by the end of the year, we really did want to make sure that we were supporting them in some of the learning objectives so that they got letters and all of that stuff. If if they weren't quite up to speed with the rest of the class, they got a little extra support with that. Mm. Oh, that's really interesting. Um, so how many years did you say you were in that position? That's a great question. Um, I was I taught for four years total. So I was three years as a kindergarten intervention teacher and one year in the fifth grade classroom. Got it. And so um, what led you then from that experience to go in the direction of research? So, I mean, I guess the simplest answer to that is burnout. Um, unfortunately, there is a huge burnout rate in our charter school system and in the early education system. And by the time I loved my school, but I commuted an hour and a half each direction to get there. The school day for kindergartners was 7 a.m. to 4 p.m. And I was often there until six. And that, um, that schedule was a lot plus a three hour commute on the subway every day. So I basically kind of ran myself into the ground. I didn't sleep enough. Um, I worked so hard for those families and those kids and that was pretty tough. And um, I think the timing ended up working out because the principal that I really liked and worked well with was leaving the school that year. And I was in a relationship that actually was leading me to move to another city. So I used that kind of as an opportunity to reevaluate, do I wanna stay in education do I want to renew my teaching license when I move to another state? Or is there a way that I can pivot from the classroom to make a bigger difference that's sort of thinking about things at the systems level? What are the types of um, positions that can take what I've learned and potentially help change and structure the system for the better? So I ended up talking to a lot of people um, and clinical psychology is one of those degrees that has quite a lot of um, bandwidth to make a difference at different levels. Um, so I decided to go into research so that I could potentially apply to clinical psych programs in a couple of years. Mm. So um, tell me a little bit about the research that you did before you um, did the whole PhD application. Yeah, so I moved to Boston and Boston is a wonderful city to be involved in research because there are so many universities and so many research labs. So I ended up getting a position in two different research labs that did work on reading disabilities and learning disabilities. Um, so the research that we did focused a lot on um, math, reading and ADHD and kind of understanding the relationships between neurodevelopmental disabilities like ADHD and learning disabilities like math disability or um, some language disability, but mostly dyslexia. Um, so we did a lot of brain research. We did MRI imaging um, with kiddos that were eight to 12 years old. And that was a really interesting experience because it was a totally different view on what kids who are struggling with reading 
looks like and really trying to understand the neural pathways that lead to what happens um, when kids are struggling. In addition to those studies, I also was working on a study that looked at the impact of um, environment. So we focused specifically on high stress environments and lower income kids, because there's sort of this split between kids who are struggling in school and kids who have a diagnosable learning disability where their brain processes reading differently versus kids who are struggling in school because they have had fewer experiences that have led them to have that environmental strength in reading or language. And so it was kind of cool that I got to do both of those things in one lab because one study was really looking at the impact of environment and the other was thinking about how differences at the neural level can lead to biological differences in brain function. Wow. That sounds amazing. Um, so then from that, did that lead directly into the decision to go for your PhD and the clinical psychology program? Yeah, I kind of knew that I wanted to do clinical psychology before I started research. So part of mm -hmm. the most clinical psych programs have a research component and I wanted to get experience in research and make sure that that was something that I wanted to continue doing before applying. So I really loved my experience working in research in Boston, decided that I could do that and kind of um, get, get my head around the idea of a PhD, which is one of the ways to get a clinical psych degree. Um, and so after working in Boston, I decided kind of as I was applying to labs, I knew that I was planning to apply to grad school programs within a year or two. Okay. And so tell us um, what exactly your program is again, yeah, the whole description. <laughs> so there are many different ways to work in the psychology field and it's confusing to people who are in the field, not to mention anyone who isn't <laughs> in the field. Um, so I am in a clinical psychology PhD program, which means that I'm essentially doing a degree that is part clinical work and part research work. Um, I'm doing a PhD the way that most other PhD students would write a dissertation, um, collect research data, kind of publish in academic journals, things like that. I also, as a part of the program, work in several psychology clinics and I'm gaining skills to work as a mental health clinician and therapist. So as a part of that, you have all of these different clinical skills and um, supervisors and different internships that train you in different types of psychological work. Um, and also as a part of the degree, you basically will apply to an internship, which is sort of like a medical residency where you have an intensive clinical year where you kind of gain that hands-on skill with the supervisor you get thousands of clinical hours. And then after you finish your dissertation, all the clinical hours and your internship year, then you get your PhD in clinical psychology. So it's like usually a seven-ish year process for most people. Wow. And where are you in that seven-year period? I just started my fourth year. Um, I'm hoping that I will be applying to internship my sixth year to finish in seven. But I also just had a baby this summer, so that may slow me down. We'll see. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so tell us about what your research um, focuses on specifically. So um, I kind of described I was working on these two different types of projects in um, Boston in the labs that I was working in. There was the learning disabilities type of work and also the lower income, high stress, how does environment impact the brain type of work. Um, and so I applied to PhD or I applied to work with professors who did each type of research and I ended up in that second category. So 
The lab that I work in now focuses on the zero to three age range. Um, and we work with families who've been exposed to significant amounts of stress, really thinking about the environmental impact of stress on neurobiological functioning. So there are people in my lab who do a lot of biology work. Um, they think about cortisol, other stress hormones. I, there's someone in our lab who does gut microbiome work, which is so cool, but it's not what I do. Um, <laughs> but it's pretty cool because we're kind of looking holistically at the impacts of early life, early life stress exposure on kids and the way that that impacts long-term academic growth, but also socio-emotional functioning and mental health in the long-term as well. Wow. And so what, um, what led you to want to focus on early intervention and the early years? I think the work that I did as a kindergarten teacher, I was shocked at how behind a four-year-old could be. Like you don't think about, you know, four-year-olds as potentially being behind in anything, but seeing how, um, how impacted some four-year-olds had been from the first three years of their life, either the exposures to different traumatic experiences that they'd had or the lack of exposure to certain academic experiences um, was really remarkable because there were kids who came to kindergarten who didn't speak for months. There were kids who came to kindergarten who would not be able to transition into the classroom at all because they would just scream at the door for hours. And so thinking about these four-year-olds who clearly had had really, really impactful first four years of their life, I think I got really interested in the early childhood space and started to realize and recognize that that critical period of zero to three, there's so much that happens and environment is so important. Um, and so honestly, the more I, we joke a lot in the research field, everyone who thinks that they're working in early childhood at the elementary age moves into preschool and then you move into zero to three. Mm -hmm. And I actually now work with researchers who are focused on the perinatal period because a lot of the ex exposure and environmental um, influence does start in pregnancy. And so there's really no such thing as too early for intervention when you talk about early intervention. Oh, wow. That's so interesting. I mean, a big part of Montessori philosophy and practice is um, the idea that, you know, the first few years of a child's life are the most impactful. I'm sure you know that as well. Yeah. Um, and one of my favorite quotes, I just found it as you were saying that is um, from a, a book that Dr. Montessori wrote called The Absorbent Mind. And she says, all that we ourselves are has been made by the child, by the child we were in the first two years of our lives. So, yeah. Yes. I love that. I love the Montessori philosophy. I wish that I knew it slightly better, but also, yeah, everything that I read, I'm just like, yes, this is how we should be raising our kids because I agree the first couple of years are so critical for yeah. the way that kids develop. Yeah. And at the time, I mean, Montessori lived, um, you know, like in the, she did most of her work in the first half of the 20th century. And at the time that was like revolutionary, nobody could have imagined, you know, they treated children like little mini adults that weren't fully formed yet. So the idea that the first two or three years of a child's life were the most impactful really was groundbreaking at the time. So I always thought that was pretty cool. Okay. So what do you think that parents and teachers and other caregivers should know about the effects of stress on a child's early years um, and specifically language development, because you said you work a lot with language development, right? Um, you know, even those who are not in high risk or high stress environments, what are some, what are some lessons that people who work with children can take from that? 
Yeah, I think so. It's obviously incredibly difficult to summarize the entire field of research on this. Um, so I will not pretend like I'm doing that. <laughs> but I think a couple of things that are really important to keep in mind. So for any child, exposure to language in the first couple of years is so important. Um, there's this study that everybody in the language field cites from 1995 that is still considered like one of the seminal research pieces out there that really thinks about um, so essentially in this study, they went to a bunch of different homes for low income, middle income and high income families. And they identified that kids in lower income families were hearing way fewer words than kids in higher income families. And there's a whole bunch of flaws within this study. It was from more than 20 years ago, of course, but some of the foundational things of understanding that lower income and higher stress families don't speak to their children as often, or there's a correlation among this like the amount of stress and the amount of income in a home and the amount um, of words that a child hears and particularly the amount of words that a child is able to engage with. So since that 1995 study, there's a whole bunch of other research that has come out that really shows the importance of conversational exchange and understanding, really noticing the more back and forth that a child is able to engage with, the more that you're with your child, not just talking at them the more that they're able to internalize that language and start to practice sounds and responding themselves. Um, so a lot of my work thinks about back and forth. Either it doesn't have to even be words. So thinking about back and forth with gestures, even the back and forth. So we have this term that we call serve and return, um, which is really the idea of sort of a tennis match where the child could turn their head to look at something and that could count as a serve where they're sort of saying, I'm interested in this thing. And then the caregiver notices that and they might bring the object that the child is looking at slightly closer and that could count as a return. So really noticing these super tiny movements back and forth between babies and their caregivers as the precursor to what will eventually become a language back and forth as well. Mm, oh, that's so interesting. Did you see that TED talk? I think it was from this summer. It was definitely within the past year of this little seven-year-old girl talking about serve and return. Um, I have not seen that TED talk. I was a little adorable. bit off the radar this summer because I had a baby, but I really would like to see that TED talk because it sounds yeah. amazing. Serve and return has sort of entered more, more and more people's like mainstream understanding. Um, but a lot of the work that our lab does focuses on that concept and specifically child-led um, interaction. So thinking about really noticing what your child is interested in and building off of that, as opposed to having the parent say, hey, we're going to learn the alphabet now and like making the child do something that wasn't initiated by them. Yeah. Yeah. And like memorization versus a real authentic, you know, linguistic experience. Yes. And I, I think all that. of that is so in line with Montessori as well. So it's yeah. really about like sharing the focus with your child. What is your child looking at? They might literally be fascinated by a piece of dirt on the floor for two hours. And if that is what they want to play with, awesome. Um, you can build all of your interactions off of that. Yeah. Oh, that's, yeah, that's so cool. That is definitely in line, in line with Montessori, following the child and yeah. letting them take their time and slowing down. Yeah. Um, so what, um, I mean, you sort of touched on this, but what other advice do you have for supporting language development in the early years? So, um, I mean, I think a lot of it is really slow, exactly what you just said, slowing down, noticing what your child is doing and letting them take the lead. Um, I guess the piece I didn't mention before you also asked about specifically for higher stress families or for that, um, we work with families who are 
coping with addiction and also families that are in homeless shelters, along with just families who are coping with struggles with getting food on the table every day and all of the other pieces associated with the stress of um, living month to month on a paycheck that doesn't fully cover everything. So I think for the context of a high stress environment, what we found is that responsive caregiving and that connection between parents and kids makes a huge difference. So we think of it as sort of as much as you can build a relationship and a strong attachment relationship with your child, um, build the amount of back and forth in those positive moments that can buffer the effects of all of the other instability and all of the other stress in your life. Um, and that applies even to families that aren't experiencing high levels of stress, having that really strong relationship between a caregiver and a child, taking the time to stop, slow down, be at your kid's level and let them take the lead is huge. And um, yeah, that's a lot of the work that our lab does is really looking at specifically what happens when you increase the amount of back and forth verbalization or gesture or just spending that time with your child and the impact that that can have even if there's sort of um, a whole bunch of swirling other chaos in the household, that relationship can really be the foundation that ensures and can help support um, a strong foundation for development. Switching to your role as a mom, um, I know your son is only five months old, but have you been able to observe any language development, cool language development things in him, even at such a young age? Can you notice like what he is responding to? Um, what have some of those moments been? Yes, I think that's a great question. It's also really funny, and I'm trying not to have some of my work as a like child psychologist overlap too much because he's developing totally at a normal rate. But I know so much about like baby language development milestones. Um, and so it's like, I want to let him develop in his own time and not stress, <laughs> stress or think too much about it. Um, essentially what happens is usually in the first three months, babies will start to coo, which is really when they're playing with vowels and they kind of just make like the ah, ooh sounds um, and they just start to vocalize and it's super cute. Um, even at one or two months old, they can have a conversation with you that way. And so they'll say, ah, and then you respond to them. <laughs> and we have some hilarious and very cute videos of, um, all of the adults in our life doing that with our son, which is really great. Um, somewhere between four and seven ish months, usually four and six months, kids will start to babble, which really means that they're building their consonant sounds in. So he just started doing that where he now has like the B sound and he'll say ba 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 and they start to repeat and that's where a lot of parents get excited they're like oh he said mama 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 yeah, he's saying yeah. mama it's not quite words yet um, because really the definition of a first word is that your child understands that it means something they're not just playing with the sounds but the whole first year is really playing with sounds imitating what you hear and learning back and forth so if you're able to engage when they pause and teach them the back and forth conversational style it doesn't matter what you're saying back to them you can imitate all of the babbling that they're doing um and that's been so fun just to see at home because he's super interactive he loves talking and talking of course is just him playing with whatever sounds come to mind yeah oh that does sound adorable. Um, so speaking of your son's language, your husband speaks Swedish. So tell me about what that has been like in trying to introduce 
Swedish into um, your baby's daily life? Yes. So I am admittedly not an expert on multilingual development, um, but we are attempting it in our household anyway. Um, so my husband grew up, um, his dad is Swedish, his mom is British, and they grew up speaking Swedish at home. So his mom learned Swedish along with him and his siblings. Um, did they grow I up am, in the US? They did grow up in the US. Um, I think a few things that helped them. So their Swedish grandparents used to stay with them for like every summer. So for several months at a time, they had Swedish only in the home because they didn't really speak English. Um, and the idea was at least when my husband was growing up, Swedish was spoken at home and English was happening at school. Um, and of course, because Lars's mom was an English speaker learning Swedish, there was some English that happened at home as well. I am in so much awe of my mother-in-law because I'm really struggling to learn Swedish. And I think we're just entering the phase where um, Axel will be learning words like right now, everyone, so my in-laws are staying with me right now. Everyone is speaking in Swedish at home. Axel gets Swedish from my husband and from my in-laws. And there's a lot of Swedish happening in the home, which I think is great. He's not quite at the stage where he's practicing vocabulary words yet. And I think that period where I might have the most success will be when he's learning one or two words at a time and I can learn them with him. Um, I can say a few small phrases like wet diaper and other things <laughs> that come up all the time. Um, but I am a bit behind in my own Swedish learning. And so I think the plan for us is my husband will speak Swedish to him. I will speak English to him. And I'm hoping to learn more Swedish along the way as yeah. we embark on this journey. I bet you will. I bet you'll find that you learn a lot of Swedish along with him. Yes. We also have a lot of Swedish children's books at home, which is great. Um, I will say the like it is not a language within – I'm sure there are phonetic rules, but I'm really struggling to learn where the vowels and consonants and how when you like randomly throw a K into a word, it makes a sh sound. I cannot read the books. It is very hard. I'm getting there. And I think that was one of the things that my mother-in-law has said really helped her was the fact that she would – continually practice her pronunciation and associate the words with the sounds as she learned how to read the books to her children. So I have, I hope. mean, I'm so impressed that she was able to learn Swedish and speak Swedish exclusively at home. That sounds so hard. <laughs> yes. She's also like a full-time engineering professor and is just like a general badass. So I have big shoes to fill. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm working on trying to even remotely catch up to her incredible um, example that she has set. <laughs> Maybe I'll have to interview her next. <laughs> yeah. um, have you noticed any babbling in Swedish of Ax that Axel has been doing like vowel sounds or is there a lot of overlap? So he is not in an age where you can tell what language i mean babbling in yeah. general is just playing with sounds and there yeah. aren't that many sounds that are so uniquely swedish that mm. i can tell what language he's babbling in um he does i actually think that he responds better swedish is a little bit closer to um Lars describes it as like swedish is more of a baby language which i think is a weird way to put it but yeah. swedish is very sing-songy and so it kind of mimics the mother ease that um like the higher pitched voice mm -hmm. that often helps children learn language. It's this natural thing that all adults do when they speak to babies is to speak in a higher tone. And that is actually something that researchers have found helps kids learn language. They understand that it's directed towards them. It's slow. It's slightly slower and it allows them to mimic better. And I think Swedish naturally is a little bit more like that than English. 
So he responds, he loves Swedish. He'll, he, even from when he was little, he would start smiling when he, when my husband was speaking to him in Swedish. Um, he really likes hearing songs in Swedish and he's very interactive. So I imagine that he will start babbling or speaking in Swedish. Um, it's just really hard to tell because right now it's like yeah. consonants and vowels, which exist right. in both languages. Yeah. I, I just, I remember hearing that babies babble in different languages. Maybe that's if they're monolingual, like you can tell the babble sounds different. I mean, you probably know the research on this better than I do. <laughs> I don't know a ton about, um, I should know more about bilingual language development because it is sort of quickly crossing into the realm of the research world that I will probably be entering in the next couple of years. I don't know a lot about babbling in multiple languages, but I think so there's all of these weird jargony terms, but technically the next phase after babbling is called um, jabbering, which is a little bit more intentional. And then you end up with like consonant vowel pairs that actually sound more like the language. So I wouldn't mm. be surprised if jabbering happens in other languages more identifiably. Yeah. But babbling is usually like a consonant vowel pair, like mama, mama, which is a little bit, I mean, mama is a Swedish word and mama is an English word. So the differences between those is like right, very negative. Right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, okay. I'm going to have to try to find this. I, re- I think I remember this from when I studied um, teaching English as a second language, but all yeah. of the work that I do is not with un- the, you know, infancy period. So I, I- it's not at the t- I'll, I'll see if I can find it. Um, but I think it, maybe it is jabbering because it's like that babies, you know, imitate the sounds that they hear. So right. uh, I guess people who study that early language development might be able to identify like this baby is a Chinese speaker because of the sounds that they're making, you know? And I think inflection probably makes a big difference too. So um, I do a lot of infant assessment work as well. And one of the things that is sort of, I can't remember the exact age when it's could first emerge, but like in the like 10-ish month range, Um, maybe even as young as eight months, kids will start to add more inflection to their words. So um, that is more mimicking the way that the way that you're talking up and down. And that's where I think you could really start to hear the language differences, especially Mm -hmm. some languages inflection changes the meaning of sounds. Um, But Swedish in particular has quite a lot of ups and downs with which syllables are emphasized. And I can imagine that mimicking that would become much more notable between the two languages. Mm, yeah. Um, oh, that's very interesting. Um, okay. So one more question about Axel. Tell me about um, the Reggio Emilia school that he goes to and why you chose that. Yes. So um, he goes to a Reggio Emilia daycare. I love it. He has an incredible head teacher who's been working there for more than 25 years. Um, and I guess the short answer to why we chose it is that um, this was the only daycare that actually had a spot for an infant um, <laughs> within the university system. So because I'm a graduate student, we get um, subsidized childcare within the university programs. And this particular, a lot of them, unfortunately, have shut down their infant programs because of COVID. This school happened to have an infant classroom this year, and he got a spot there. But even outside of that, I think we would have chosen this space um, They're pretty close to our house and they're so incredible. It's a co-op, which means that they really encourage parent involvement. It's a little bit tough during COVID because they don't really have parents in the classroom the way they normally would. But the school itself is very child-led. They spend a ton of time outside. So in her, my, our, um, 
the head teacher of the classroom has mentioned that even though technically it's a Reggio Emilia school, she said in my next life, I want to start a forest school, which is also like a secret dream of mine. Um, so they spend a ton of time just walking around outside in the woods. It rains a lot here in Eugene and they don't mind. They just believe in putting the kids in better clothes, which is a very Scandinavian she's from Iceland. So it's a very Scandinavian um, ethos to the classroom where they just have them explore the world, listen to the wind, focus on really those like tiny micro moments of like, what is the child exploring? What are they trying to figure out as they roll over as they reach for that leaf? Um, and they send us these very cute infant journals that have like mini storylines that show sort of a picture progression of a child learning something. And they're hilarious because, you know, I remember the first picture journal they sent out that had a little story about Axel. It was just a tiny story about him putting all of the different fingers in his mouth, trying to find which one was like the most comfortable for soothing himself. But they spent like a whole page describing this journey and really noticing those micro moments of what is he doing as he spends 10 minutes sticking different fingers in his mouth and exploring his own hand. And I think that's what's so beautiful about Reggio is that they really focus at this tiny, tiny level of trying to think from the child's perspective on what they're learning in that particular moment, which is so cool. Yeah, that is so cool. There is a lot of overlap um, between Reggio and Montessori. Um, yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah. The, I don't know if this is true of Montessori classrooms, but his classroom is beautiful because it's all very like natural colors and all of the toys in there are, they really don't have a lot of toys. They have a lot of materials. So they explore fabrics. They explore, they have like a button, the corner of crunchy leaves that the kids can explore the sounds and the textures of different like plant materials. And it's not a classroom full of like plastic, which yeah. I just really appreciate. Um, and I know that Montessori tends to focus a lot on wooden, wooden toys and mm -hmm. like kind of more natural materials as well. But there's something that's just so beautiful and peaceful about the room because the whole room is designed with just fabric and natural materials and wood. Yeah. And it's such an awesome space for kids to explore on their own, which is great. Yeah. That is, it's, that's a big part of Montessori as well. And also, like you said, almost no plastics in the yeah. classroom when we can avoid it, including glasses for drinking, even for two-year-olds, you know, yeah. and they, they get that immediate feedback. Then they learn if they drop it, it breaks. And it's not a big deal if a glass breaks, you know, then we teach them the process for cleaning that up. Um, but having that access to natural material is so important at, you know, at such a young age, they really are drawn to natural materials. They're, you know, enticing for them to explore. Um, and also they develop an appreciation for those natural materials at such a young age. Yeah. I love that. It's so, it's so great. And it's really in line with the research work that we do too. Cause you walk in and you're like, wow, I spent a lot of my time looking at videos of parents and babies interacting. And, um, a lot of the intervention work that we do is helping teach parents to notice their child's cues and slow down and like think about things from the child's perspective and you walk into the infant classroom at his daycare and you can just see incredible modeling of this exact skill where you're just slowing down and noticing what the babies are doing and what they're thinking about and what they're trying to figure out and it's super awesome to have that overlap between work and what he's doing for work while i'm there <laughs> yeah that is so cool um so what so back to your professional life what are your goals for after you finish your phd oh gosh um so 
PhD programs are kind of a beast. And I, there is a point at the middle, which is around where I'm at, where you just sort of lose track of all of your goals and hopes. Um, <laughs> it's not totally, not totally where I'm at, but I think right now, so I work um, in a few different um, internship placements for my clinical work. And one of the things that I've really loved, this is my second year working in a perinatal clinic. So I mentioned earlier that there's this um, drive for people who think about early intervention to go from preschool and then into the zero to three period. And now I end up working quite a lot with pregnant women. Um, but I'm really enjoying this perinatal practicum. And I think it's a little tough for me to say right now, but there's a part of me that loves the social aspect and the impact that you can make when you work with parents and kids together. Um, I do a lot of toddler trauma work, which is pretty heavy. Um, so I'm working with kids who are involved in the child protective services. Often they're involved in the foster care system as well, processing trauma and helping toddlers understand um, and kind of vocalize through play what has happened to them and integrate that experience into something that they can then form a secure attachment either with a new caregiver or with the caregiver that may have perpetrated harm on them. So it's really, really tough work, but it's also incredibly rewarding. So you can see the impact that therapy work can have on a kiddo. And if they're able to process that and come to a place where they're able to be in a much more secure, responsive relationship at that age, that child is going to have much better outcomes in the long term. Um, so that's really rewarding. There is a piece of me that also thinks a lot about my original motivation to come to a clinical psych degree being more at the systems level. So right now, when you engage in individual therapy work, in some ways, it's the same level that I was engaging when I was a teacher. You impact the kids that are in front of you, the families that you're, you're working with directly, but you're not necessarily changing things at the systems level. To be honest, I don't love um, the academic research world. I don't think that I'm going to stay there. Um, it's not it's not exactly aligned. Uh, the pace is a lot slower than I thought it would be. And so it's hard to think about my research work that I've been working on for four years. The By the time that ever gets out, it's just such a slow process to change things at the systems level. But I do think that there are positions that really think about the translation between research and practice. And somewhere in that intersection is where I want to be. So probably not working exclusively in research, probably not working exclusively in practice, but somewhere in between. Um, and the professor that I work with is really a great model for that because he's actually taking a new position this year at this really incredible early childhood center at Stanford University um, that thinks about how do you translate research and best practice into something that can impact and kind of build interventions that will impact entire systems of children and not just one child in front of you. So I think I'm working with the right person. Unfortunately, he's leaving the University of Oregon, but I still have a relationship with him. And I think thinking about a career where you're really bridging the gap between some research, some like working within an organization, but building out interventions or building better, I mean, honestly, working where research intersects with policy too is really interesting to me because that is taking an entire district or an entire state or an entire country of children and thinking about what is best practice for them. So I don't have a great answer to your question because there's still a lot of open doors. But one of the reasons why I chose clinical psychology is that you can dabble in all of those things with this degree. And so I imagine that my life will probably take me in the direction where I'm in kind of all three of those areas in some capacity over the next few years. Wow. 
That is extremely impressive. I can't wait to follow along and see and watch as you change the world. No, it's, it's really amazing. I, I, am I'm enjoying like observing your experience and, and following along because I think that, um, you know, we need passionate people who want to advocate for, for children at all levels. So, yeah, it is interesting too. It's funny you say you have enjoyed observing this process because there is a lot, I mean, grad school is tough and there's a lot, um, there's so many different stops along the way where you can get lost in the weeds. And I think that's one of the things where I think I do want to move out of research because there's so much of research that's in the weeds, but the translation of that research into the real world is what motivates so many people to be here. And it's hard, it's helpful to have conversations like this and sometimes step away from academia for a little while to remember that this is why you're here and to keep that vision going because um, yeah, grad school is a beast and it can it can get really easy to get lost along the way in terms of what that vision is so yeah i should have people like you remind me what i what i'm doing here more often yeah well <laughs> you know we can make this a yearly thing we'll check in with your research in a year <laughs> oh gosh i have not made a lot of research <laughs> progress this year don't <laughs> so two or three years we'll check Great. in <laughs> Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Andrea. This was so fun. I loved hearing about everything that you're up to. Thank you so much for having me, Gabby. This podcast is such a cool idea. And I was totally intimidated when you first said like, oh, I should interview you. I'm like, I have nothing <laughs> important to say on this topic. But I think it's been really fun being here and just sort of sharing stories. And hopefully some of this is interesting and helpful to all of the listeners. I mean, I hope that the last hour has shown you that you have very many important things to say. So <laughs> I'm sure it's going to be very interesting to a lot of people. It certainly was to me. Awesome. Well, I can't wait to um, follow the rest of the journey where this podcast takes you and to hear how this episode turns out. Thank you. Thank you again to Andrea for joining me for this conversation. You can find Andrea's bio on the University of Oregon website with her contact information linked in the episode description. You can also find the link to the TED Talk we mentioned about serve and return in the episode description. Its full title is How Every Child Can Thrive by Five, and it was given by seven-year-old Molly Wright. You can follow Multilingual Montessori on Instagram at multilingual.montessori and you can find more resources for raising bilingual and multilingual children from a Montessori perspective at multilingualmontessori.org. Please take a moment to subscribe to the Multilingual Montessori podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening right now. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to leave a five-star rating. If you're interested in an extra episode each month on a topic related to language acquisition in young children, you can join the Patreon community. You'll find the link to that in the episode description as well. Another wonderful way to support the podcast is to share it with someone who you think would enjoy it as well. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. Mm-hmm.